Research can show you how much money you can make, how you can impact the public health and safety of the people in your community. So if they decide to want to move in the direction of cannabis legalization and defend to the anti-cannabis people in their community why they're doing it, then they can trout out the data and say, you know, we can have new schools and we can have roads and we can have, you know, we see um, opiate prescriptions go down. We see youth use go down. Like they can use those talking points. But in terms of really coming out as a champion for policy reform, it's going to be about replacing the feeling that it's not a good idea with the feeling that it is a good idea. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Dr. Amanda Ryman, Chief Knowledge Officer, New Frontier Data, and founder of Personal Plants. Dr. Amanda, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I woke up thinking it was Tuesday. So, um, you know, very relieved that I'm an extra day towards the weekend. And uh, it's only in the 90s here today. So life couldn't be better. Ah, uh, that is hot. And I think you might be on the West Coast. Kellen, I think you're going to allude to that. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, honestly. Uh, excited to talk to Dr. Uh, Raymond. Excited to talk statistics, data, and everything that New Frontiers provides. And, you know, I think it's even more prevalent now because another West Coaster is coming on to help educate uh, with data now, right? How are you, Brian? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm excited to talk about conversation. Sure, the East Coast definitely needs some education. I think I'm really excited for the alcohol cannabis conversation Ooh. because I've had a lot of those questions recently and I didn't have any good answers. So I think Dr. Uh, Amanda would be perfect to kind of help specify that. So for our listeners that aren't from that, you can you give a background about yourself and kind of how you got into the regulatory space? Absolutely. So I grew up in the Midwest during the D.A.R.E era, started using cannabis as a young adult. And, um, you know, I always go back to say this is the days before the internet. So the Midwest really didn't know what the West Coast was doing. Uh, in 2002, I moved out to Oakland uh, to start a PhD program at UC Berkeley. And I immediately found that I was in the middle of this renaissance of medical cannabis and dispensaries and being able to go into a store and purchase cannabis. Uh, was really something that floored me. And um, I immediately really wanted to study it. And one of the big reasons I wanted to study it is because early medical cannabis dispensaries were more than just stores. They really were community health service providers. And they were providing patients not only a safe place to consume, but education, entertainment, uh, community support, legal support, alternative health options, and so I felt like, you know, this was maybe a fleeting model that we weren't going to see as capitalism slowly crept into the cannabis space. And as a researcher, I believe that the best way uh, to make sure that no one forgets that this happened is to write about it and publish about it. So I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on medical cannabis dispensaries and how they operated as health service providers. That was back in 2005. And at the time, there were only a handful of us that were doing research on cannabis at all, other than the harms of cannabis. So... It really just thrust me into this space where I had an opportunity to really pave the way um, in cannabis research, looking at cannabis and harm reduction. And so, you know, I stayed after I graduated from Berkeley. 
I was a professor there for over 10 years. I taught courses all about cannabis. And then I went to work for Berkeley Patients Group, which is one of the oldest dispensaries in the country. They had a whole host of social and health programs associated with the dispensary. And that's when I started doing research on the use of cannabis as a substitute for alcohol, opiates, and other things. And I stayed with that course of research. I then went to work for Drug Policy Alliance as their manager of marijuana law and policy. Stuck with that through Prop 64 here in California. Um, I then went into the private sector to work for Flow Cannabis Company, which, you know, we can talk all about that as a cautionary tale of, you know, intentions. That What did they say? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. That should have been our tagline. And then I ended up going to New Frontier Data, you know, really wanting to get back to the science, to the research, and really helping the industry understand where it was going and who consumers were and how their attitudes were changing. And so I've been there now for a couple of years as chief knowledge officer. And then back in 2020, I founded Personal Plants, which is really my passion project. It is an educational platform that focuses on how to develop healthy and balanced relationships with psychoactive plants. During Prohibition, we were really robbed of the opportunity to talk in a realistic and pragmatic way about psychoactive plants. The messaging was just don't do it. And if you do it, there's something wrong with you. And then, you know, activists really needed to hammer home the message that these plants were not very dangerous. And while that's absolutely true, nothing is without risk. And so if we don't have open and honest conversations about healthy consumption, about how to maintain those healthy patterns throughout our lifetime. We're going to have a whole bunch of people that get to be old, which is when cannabis is like really, really helpful and realize that their relationship isn't where it needs to be and that they're not getting the benefits that they could. So Personal Plants puts out articles about healthy consumption and also how to grow your own cannabis, how to make your own products at home. Because I do believe that getting hands-on is a great way to develop a mindful and balanced relationship, just like our food. You know, if I went into the grocery store and bought hamburger meat, but had never seen a cow, it'd be really hard for me to understand, you know, some of the aspects of, of meat production that impact our environment, that impact animal welfare. So I really encourage folks to get to know the plant on a personal level in order to have that good relationship. I think that's so important. I, I can only imagine, you know, the type of information that when you first got started and how much we've come from there. So let's let's take it from there. When you first got started, the dissertation, was there any assumptions that you had early on in that process that over the 10 years you you were surprised that were ended up different? Just something that kind of caught you that you were like, huh, I didn't think about it like that. Well, really the substitution aspect was very interesting to me. You know, a lot of times when I was growing up, at least, cannabis was really framed as a gateway drug, right? It was this drug that led you into hazardous behaviors with other drugs. Now, I will say right here that I believe the gateway drug is sugar, and we can talk more about why that is. But I quickly learned that cannabis was not a gateway drug and that it was, in fact, an exit drug. And this whole idea of people using cannabis to reduce their alcohol use, to reduce their opiate use, really came from my own experience as a medical cannabis patient. Um, I uh, My doctor is Dr. Frank Lucido. He's in Berkeley. He's been doing this for decades. And he has a very extensive intake form process. And a part of that intake form is asking people about what happened to your use of other things when you started using cannabis. And so you know, this idea that cannabis could help people move off of more dangerous substances or move away from more dangerous patterns was never really something that we could talk about or investigate because everything was lumped together. And cannabis was the same as heroin, is the same as cocaine, is the same as methamphetamine. 
when the reality is, you know, these drugs are inanimate objects and it's really about our behavior towards them that determines their risks and benefits. So the opportunity to dive deeper into how patients were using cannabis as a harm reduction tool was something unexpected and a very pleasant surprise that really has guided my, my research since then. And so I think, right, cocaine is actually less dangerous than cannabis, according to how we schedule it, right? Um. Well, yes, according to the schedules, <laughs> cocaine is a schedule two. Right. Um, you know, cannabis is a schedule one. The reason cocaine is a schedule two is because its derivatives are used as numbing agents during surgery. So Novocaine, lidocaine, using during eye surgery, oral surgery, these are connected to cocaine. So there is an expressed medical use. You know, obviously not only the schedules, but the designation of legality when it comes to substances is completely arbitrary and has nothing to do with the safety profile or medical benefit. And so this mission that you just described, right, that was, is that kind of the mission that drove you out of teaching at UC Berkeley? Because it sounds like that's kind of a dream job for a lot of researchers, right? You're at a, a prestigious D1 institute. You're, you've been teaching for a decade, so you're probably on tenure track. What were some of the conversations that you're having with your colleagues at that time? And, and was it this kind of true mission statement that you felt you needed to kind of get out of the academic environment to have more of an impact on society? Was that kind of the driving forces behind that? Um, you know, not really. So Berkeley has always been very supportive of my research. You know, when I did my doctoral dissertation, it was the first study they ever had that had anything to do with cannabis. And they approved it, which, you know, I had other colleagues that were getting their degrees at other universities, which I won't mention, um, who basically told them, you're not allowed to attend any cannabis conferences. You're not allowed to deal with cannabis at all. So Berkeley as an institution was always, always very supportive. And I very much enjoyed teaching there. You know, honestly, it was the desire to move out of the Bay Area, um, to move up to the country, to get a little bit closer to the source of where cannabis was being cultivated and better understand how the industry of cultivation was connected to rural economies that had me move out of Oakland and up to Ukiah in Mendocino County, where I am now. Um, you know, I still teach. So I do online teaching uh, for several different universities and I really, really enjoy it. Um, but I wanted to get into the field and really be in it rather than just observing it. Um, and, you know, that's why New Frontier is a nice hybrid of that because we're not plant touching. We are the observers. We are the data collectors, but we're a little bit closer um, to the actual industry than being in academia, which can sometimes feel a little far removed. I want to I want to read a quote off your website and then I want to get your feedback. The okay. next time your mom tells you that she can't sleep. What what does that mean and for the moms out there that have maybe said that quite a few times, my mom in particular, tell us tell us what that means and why you put it up there. So, you know, there's been this assumption, of course, that cannabis is a young person's substance, that it's about partying. You know, when I was growing up, kind of the examples of who cannabis consumers were, were young people that didn't have a care in the world, that didn't have any responsibilities, the Cheech and Chongs, the Jeff Spicolis, uh, the whole cast of Dazed and Confused. And so I think it's really important that we recognize that cannabis is for anybody, but not for everybody. And that includes people who are older, who maybe really grew up in reefer madness with that stigma, but are looking at things in their life where they want to have some kind of assistance. And a lot of times that sleep, especially as we get older, 
and maybe aren't keen on Ambien or some of the -the over-the-counter sleep aids and are looking for alternatives. And so, you know, one of the things I really try to stress is that we should be talking to everyone about cannabis. We shouldn't be making assumptions that just because you're a certain age or because you use a certain medication or because you have a certain ailment, that cannabis isn't for you. And so, you know, I really try to help people with that conversation. You know, I've been dubbed the Dr. Ruth of cannabis because Dr. Ruth took sex, which is a very stigmatized uh, activity that is assumed that only certain people talk about it and talk about it in certain ways and made it really accessible. And that is my goal with cannabis. I want to help people have those conversations. I want to teach people how to approach their parents, how to approach people that may still be mired in the reefer madness mentality and help them understand how cannabis can benefit them and that it doesn't necessarily mean smoking a joint. You know, that's kind of another barrier to adoption, especially for folks my age and older who were really hammered in about smoking and the negatives of smoking. Um, People don't want to smell. They don't want people to know they're doing it. They don't want their hair to smell like smoke. They don't want their fingers to smell like smoke. They don't want to have secondhand smoke in their environments. And so for some folks, they reject the notion of cannabis just because of that one method of consumption. And I think it's really important that we have evidence-informed and compassionate discussions about the many, many ways that cannabis can interact with somebody's life. I think that's so important. And I think for some people, they might be a little more hesitant to get started and then move it from melatonin to the cannabis. But then I think there's others in the category who enjoy their glass or two at wine at night and then take the edible, which I think maybe doesn't derive that same results that maybe you can speak to of the importance of just understanding that mixing alcohol and cannabis is not the same as just taking cannabis when going to sleep. Oh, 100%. So something I used to tell my students, cannabis and alcohol have a synergistic relationship, which is like one plus one equals four. And so anybody, myself included, who has found themselves having a little too much of one and then adding the other... Uh, knows that you may have an effect you don't want. And it seems we don't have research on this. So again, this is just my experience and observations, but it seems that the order of consumption matters. Um, You know, if you're somebody that has had a lot to drink, I do not recommend consuming cannabis, especially if you're a newer consumer, because there is a likelihood that you'll get nauseous, that you'll get the spins, that you'll have a negative outcome. However, when people go the other direction, and they start with cannabis, and then they add alcohol, what they find is they're able to get away with a lot less alcohol. So if you're usually a two glass of wine person and you have some cannabis, then you might find half a glass of wine is giving you the same effect as you would get before. But again, you have to be really careful. And I definitely encourage people to only use one or the other, um, and definitely be aware of your surroundings and you know what the risks might be of becoming too intoxicated in your current setting. And so with cannabis and drinking, it probably changes uh, based on age, right? And so I think uh, in one of your recent re- reports, you guys reported that Gen Z uh, is le- way less likely, I think 56% less likely to consume alcohol versus cannabis. Uh, when you compare it to older generations. So do you think that that's just a product of the continuous education that's occurred over the last decade and kind of this slow roll of breaking all the stigmas and propaganda that came with cannabis over the last 60 years? I think that behaviors around intoxicants are like a pendulum. 
And, you know, one of the things, so before I, when I was a grad student, I was working at the Alcohol Research Group, which is attached to UC Berkeley because they didn't have a cannabis research group at the time. And one of the things that the researchers used to talk about was how the generation, the new generation wants to do what their parents aren't doing. Right. So it's like if my parents were drinking scotch, I drink beer. If my parents are drinking beer, I drink wine. If my parents are drinking wine, I'm drinking scotch. And, you know, part of that is young people wanting to define themselves as being different and independent from their parents. And so one of the things we're seeing, cannabis aside, and I'll talk a minute about how I think cannabis contributes to this, but we're seeing a generation of folks come up that are kind of rejecting this idea of alcohol being a part of their social experience. And so again, cannabis aside, we're seeing sober bars, we're seeing more elixirs and cocktails that use adaptogens and different types of mushrooms and things that aren't alcohol as a way to provide the same kind of relaxation. And so there's that kind of trend that's happening. Uh, we've done a lot of education about the public health effects and impacts of alcohol, which are many. And then you introduce cannabis as an alternative. So it's almost like the intersection of having a generation that's less interested in alcohol, that's more interested in alternatives to alcohol, and oh, here's cannabis as an alternative that's now being made more available, that's becoming normalized, and that's coming out in product forms that pretty much mimic the experience of drinking alcohol. And that was one of the big barriers to adoption of alcohol, of cannabis as a substitute is that edibles don't act like alcohol, right? I mean, you're going to get a buzz from it, but you have to wait an hour. And if you're with your friends and they're having beers and you're eating a gummy and then it's like an hour and a half later and you're finally like, woohoo, and they're like, we're going home, like we're done. There's a mismatch there. You know, in America, at least, and really globally, we drink our intoxicants. We drink sugar soda. We drink alcohol, we drink coffee. You know, these are all substances that have chemicals in them that change our perceptions, that change our mood. And so it makes sense that when it comes to cannabis, we'd be looking for something that's just like those other things. And now that we see fast acting beverages, we're seeing a wider variety of beverages available through cannabis. I think we will see people understand that it can be a one-to-one substitute and that I can drink this cannabis beverage while my friend drinks a beer and in 10 minutes, we're both going to be where we want to be. And I think that's been the missing piece to truly getting people to view cannabis as a viable substitute. It's wild because we're talking about like the adoption of the complete shifting of consumer behavior, like moving from the health conscious understanding that alcohol is poison. And when you have it, you feel hungover. And most people, when they consume cannabis, don't feel that hungover. And I think that's a big headwind for the alcohol companies who are, who are looking at the data and seeing that the trends are happening aggressively and wondering to themselves, like, how are we going to get all of this demographic that we anticipate to be purchasing our products back on board. So I I wonder what the alcohol customer's response is going to be to the shifting in the consumer behavior. Well, I'll tell you, the alcohol companies, they're already getting on board. So two of my favorite cannabis beverages that are on the market right now, one's made by Lagunitas and one's made by PBR. And so they obviously, they know what they're doing, right? They know how to formulate. They know how to do mass distribution. They know how to do quality control when it comes to beverages. I mean, there is kind of a knowledge base around how do you mass distribute a beverage and make sure that the quality stays the same, that the packaging is compliant. You know, alcohol has a lot of rules also when it comes to packaging, when it comes to who the consumer can be. So I think it makes sense. And so I think it's, you know, we can 
I don't know who owns them, but I believe there's some kind of alcohol company involvement there as well. Um, and so I, I see the marketing of these beverages really taking the place of the marketing I used to see as a young person in the 80s for alcohol, right? It's like people at a picnic having fun and they're all young and good looking and energetic. And like, you know, we're seeing kind of the same messaging around cannabis beverages as we used to see around alcohol beverages. Because I think the alcohol companies are understanding that Gen Zs are not lining up to become alcohol drinkers. So they have to shift their messaging to focus on an older crowd of people that are interested in drinking alcohol, which is really kind of Gen X and older. And they have to look at other product verticals. So, you know, we are seeing alcohol companies come out with non-alcoholic versions of their products, you know, coming out with elixirs and things that are kind of taking the place of hard liquor for people that want to make and mix drinks. We're seeing bars that you know, previously relied solely on income from alcohol, starting to have non-alcoholic versions that aren't just like, here's your O'Doul's, right? It's like, no, here's this really fancy cocktail that I'm making you that for all intents and purposes looks and feels just like the fanciest cocktail you've ever had, only there's no alcohol in it. And they weren't going to make that shift unless they felt that the audience was there and the customer was there. And I think the Gen Zs are showing us that, yes, that customer is there. So anecdotally speaking, I feel like there has been, especially in like maybe the last five years, especially, there's been a lot more primary literature and studies conducted on the effects and the harms of alcohol. And especially with like the proliferation of like wearables, like whoops and these aura rings, people can see the effects that alcohol has on their physiology when they consume it and they sleep. I don't know if that's actually true, but do you think that that also, like that body of research that's being published and this new knowledge that everyone has access to is contributing to most consumers like making different decisions with their from a purchasing perspective? I think they're really basing it more on personal experience and the experience of people they know. I mean, the thing about research, and I love research, it's like what I love to do most, it very rarely trickles down accurately to the general public. And even when you see like CNN or other news sites report a new study that's come out, it very rarely accurately describes what the research says, because they want people to click on it. So they're going to exaggerate things. They're going to try to come up with clickbaity headlines that may not reflect the actual research. So I don't necessarily think that people are making decisions based on the research. But to your point, more than ever, we have the ability to know what's happening in our bodies at any given time. We have the ability to monitor our sleep. We have the ability to monitor our fitness. We have the ability to monitor our brain activity. And so just that, that awareness of all of these systems that are going on and then being able to see for yourself the impact that alcohol has on these systems, you know, these systems are also completely gamified. So, you know, when you're tracking your sleep and you're tracking your fitness, like that's all gamification, right? It's badges and it's streaks and it's, you know, all of that. So if, you know, if people are like, Ooh, I want to have, you know, good sleep five days in a row, because then I get the good sleep badge on my app, they're going to do what they feel they need to do to achieve that. And if that means not having alcohol in the evening and having cannabis instead, and they see that, impact in their data, I think that's going to drive them to maintain that behavior change probably more than anything that researchers are putting out. 
Potentially, right? But then you got the others that are saying, hey, I've been drinking two glasses of wine every day for 40 years. It doesn't affect me. I don't feel that certain way. I sleep differently because of X. And I think those are the people that are going to need some sort of different path forward because they're not interested in, in the data. They just like what they like. And ultimately, the problem is that the alcohol companies have such a stranglehold of information and have kind of solidified into their daily routine that this is a part of their lifestyle. And they may never change. I mean, so the thing is, is it's something that I've learned after delivering thousands of letters and petitions to elected officials over the years is that people do not change their minds with their heads. They change their minds with their hearts. And so that's why the data doesn't necessarily make somebody change their behavior. It's that they feel that they should be doing something differently. And, you know, I mean, I'm as I've gotten older... My metabolism has changed and that has forced my relationship with cannabis and alcohol and other things to change. So I do think that age brings on some of that change. But then I also think there's people that will never change. And, you know, there's a parallel to that of legislators in Congress where we're like, you know what? In fact, I'll tell you this little anecdote. So years ago, I delivered a whole bunch of petitions to Dianne Feinstein's office in California, in San Francisco, around supporting medical cannabis at the federal level. And we met with one of her staffers and her staffer said, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think she's ever going to change her mind. I think you're just going to have to wait for her not to be in Congress anymore. And I do think that there are people like that where, you know, they... They, it's been working for them, or maybe it hasn't been working for them, but it's the, what they know and it, they're comfortable with the discomfort that they're experiencing. And so that's just going to be their habit. And so, you know, I don't think we necessarily need to change their minds, but I do think we just make things available and appealing to them and not assume that the cannabis consumer is a monolith because they absolutely aren't. And the messaging and product that's going to appeal to the 80-year-old man who's been having his two cocktails every night for 50 years is not necessarily the same thing that's going to get to the hearts and minds of, you know, the 25-year-old consumer who's just figuring out what their intoxication regime looks like and what works best for them. Sure. So let's let's kind of dive a little bit into the study. And can you help our listeners understand for what substitution means in the context of your study? So I've always defined substitution as the conscious decision to use one substance instead of another. And there's all kinds of reasons. I will say that across three different studies now in two countries with thousands of participants, we get pretty much the same three answers as to why people use cannabis as a substitute for something else. That cannabis serves their needs better. So whether those are medical needs or recreational needs, like they find that cannabis is a better option for meeting those needs, that they're less concerned about addiction and dependence when it comes to cannabis, and that cannabis has fewer negative side effects than the other things that they are consuming. And we have found that about alcohol. We have found that about opiates. I have found that about methamphetamine and other studies that I have done. But again, you know, it's really about what they have access to and what their brain is telling them is the best option for them. And if somebody has physical or psychological dependence on a substance, they still may choose that substance instead of something that is less dangerous because that's their pattern of behavior. Um, But the substitution is really a conscious activity and it is making a mindful decision to use one thing instead of another. Is there a safe level of alcohol consumption or just a, a fair or healthy amount of alcohol consumption that one can can have? 
Well, I mean, they try to come up with all kinds of guidelines. And of course, this is really going to depend on person to person. The guidelines are different for women than they are for men. And they're different for people that have pre-existing conditions versus not. Um, I believe that recently a meta-analysis came out where they basically reviewed all of the studies that had ever been done on alcohol. And the, the result was there's really no safe level of alcohol consumption. That you know, alcohol does not do our bodies well that we would all be better off if we didn't use it at all. But I also think we have to meet people where they're at. And this is kind of where harm reduction comes in. And I'm a big harm reductionist. It's like my whole philosophy is that people are going to drink. They just are. Even if we tell them there's no safe level, even if we give them all the great substitutes in the world, even if they're still going to do it. And so how do we minimize and reduce the potential harms that can come from someone consuming alcohol. And it's not always about the substance. Sometimes it's about the environment. So when I talk about social consumption lounges for cannabis and people are all like, ah, we shouldn't have social consumption lounges. I'm like, what do you think a bar is? A bar is a social consumption lounge. A bar is a safe consumption area. There are things we do in alcohol bars to try to minimize the harms that we know can come from alcohol intoxication. If you see in a bar, the edge of the bar is rounded. That's not just aesthetics. That's so if someone hits their head on it, they don't crack their head open. You might go to a bar and the stools are nailed to the ground. That's not so people don't steal them. It's so if someone gets angry and in a fight, they can't pick them up and use them as a weapon. You know, we have safe server training for people that serve alcohol so that they can know if somebody's been overserved and what to do in that case. Like all of these things are saying, look, we know people are going to drink alcohol. How do we make that experience as safe as possible? So, you know, I do think we're not going to get rid of alcohol. It's it's very much ingrained in our culture. We might see interest in it ebb and flow based on the generations, but we should always really approach this and really all drug use, in my opinion, from a harm reduction perspective with the acknowledgement that the that these substances are going to be consumed just like they've been consumed for hundreds of years. And we can do things to actively make that consumption safer for the consumer and for the people around them. And so with, with harm reduction, when it pertains to cannabis, right, most consumers of cannabis smoke it. And, and we're well aware in society that lighting something on fire and inhaling it is not great for our health, right? So as consumption lounges start to kind of proliferate across the U.S. in, in recreational markets... Do you think that it's a situation that they should solely rely on, say, beverages, especially with the emergence of like nano emulsions for fast acting? Or do you think there is a, a space for cannabis consumption lounges that will allow for, for smoking, even though that there is like a harmful aspect to it? Yeah, this is a really tough question because um, I was part of some studies that were done at University of California, San Francisco in their tobacco department, really looking at secondhand cannabis smoke. And it's not great. <laughs> um, there are a lot of very small particulates in cannabis smoke that do become lodged deep in the lungs. And you know, if you're going to be in that lounge for an hour, it's probably not going to hurt you if they've got good ventilation. But if you're a worker in that lounge for eight hours, you know, I have worked the Emerald Cup before. And even though I was in a large tent with a lot of airflow going through, after being in that tent for eight hours, you feel horrible. 
Like, you know, your throat hurts, your lungs hurt, your eyes hurt, you feel like you're high, even if you haven't consumed anything. So I do think we need to take this seriously. Um, I don't want us to become uh, be in a situation where 20 years from now, we're seeing ads on TV like mesothelioma. And it's like, did you work in a consumption lounge between the years of 2025 and 2030? And now you have cancer. You know, you might be, be able to get money. Like, I don't want that to happen for us. Um, so I do think we have to be really careful about exposure. And that could be done through proper ventilation. It could be done by limiting the amount of time that people can spend in lounges, limiting the amount of time that workers can spend in lounges, the use of outdoor spaces. So here in Ukiah, you know, our social consumption law is that you can have edibles and drinks and things indoors, but that smoking and vaping have to happen in the in an outdoor portion of the lounge. Now, here's my caveat to everything that I just said. Traditionally, social consumption lounges were havens for access for patients who could not consume at home. Uh, you cannot smoke cannabis in public housing. Many apartment buildings have rules about being able to smoke anything in the apartment building. So if I'm someone that uses cannabis as a health tool and I'm a patient and I need to consume and my preferred method of consumption is smoking and I can't do it at home, where do I do it? If I'm a tourist and I'm in Las Vegas and I can't smoke at my hotel because they have no smoking rules and I can't smoke just walking around on the street but I want to smoke a joint because that's the method I feel most comfortable with in terms of titrating my dose and making sure I don't consume too much. Where do I do it? So I do think we have to reconcile these two things. And that is going to be a huge part of the conversation around consumption lounges. But I also agree with you that as we see the rollout of the nanoemulsified beverages, the fast-acting edibles, that may become less of an issue because you know titration of dose is one of the big reasons why people prefer to consume via inhalation. They feel it right away. They know how much they've taken. For a lot of folks, it's just what they're used to. You know, it's it's kind of what they recognize, and they love the flower, so they want to be able to interact with the raw flower and not with a distillate or isolate or other type of ingredient. So this is kind of uncharted territory in a lot of ways, but I do think that the public health discussion has to come in. I think the patient access and tourist access discussion has to come in. And we also have to not make assumptions that cannabis smoke is healthy if you can't smell it or see it um, because we know differently. So that's my hope moving forward because I do believe in consumption lounges. I think they're very, very important for public health and safety. Um, I think it's important for consumers to be able to be around other consumers while they're learning how to use cannabis in case they start to feel anxious. There's folks there that can help them. So I think there's so many reasons to have it. We just don't want to have any unintended consequences because we didn't take our time and really think about what are the public health implications. So we usually speak about all pro aspects of cannabis. I'd, I'd like you to give us another negative aspect, one that's just not commonly understood or one that's not commonly heard. THC tolerance. It's a thing. It is a thing and it impacts your endocannabinoid system. So, you know, our endocannabinoid systems, they are there to regulate things like mood and sex and appetite and sleep. And when you start hammering those receptors with THC being brought in from an external source, your endocannabinoid system gets lazy. 
And it's like putting its feet up in the back of the car on the road trip. And it's like, I don't really need to work that hard anymore. Like, I don't need to be releasing all of these endocannabinoids because you're supplementing my job with the plant. So over time, you will build up tolerance to THC and your endocannabinoid system will start getting sluggish. And we do not want that, right? We want our ECS to be toned, to be effective, to be efficient. And so one of the concerns I have, especially with higher THC products, now I'm not talking about taking a 30 milligram gummy. I'm really talking about, you know, chronic use of like a vape pen where you're inhaling um, oil that's upwards of 60, 70, 80% THC. I do think that that is something we need to talk about. And when people take a break from cannabis, which I recommend taking a tolerance break from cannabis at least once a year, mostly once a month, I take 48 hours off every single month of THC you will feel what we classify as withdrawals. And these withdrawals usually take the format of trouble sleeping, no appetite, irritability. And guess what? These are all things regulated by your endocannabinoid system. So what's really happening is when you stop stimulating through phytocannabinoids, which are what come from the plant, it takes a few days for your endocannabinoid system to be like, holy shit, they just gave me the wheel. And now I need to like figure out what I'm doing and I have to jump into action. And so that week or so in between, you know, you can feel those effects. And unfortunately, people will jump right back to cannabis because they don't like to feel that way. Um, But if you can just hold out and, you know, get through that first week, Um, you know, you'll find not only do you start to feel more like yourself again and your appetite comes back and your sleep comes back and your mood comes back, but when you do go back to cannabis, oh my God, are you a cheap date? Because you can use so much less and get the same effect. And if you really make sure that you don't fall back into old habits, you can get away with a lot less, which is going to allow you to both enjoy THC and make sure that your endocannabinoid system doesn't take a vacation. Would you recommend someone, let's say, who's a 10 milligram user on a daily basis to take those tea breaks? And then during those tea breaks, would alcohol be a fair substitute in those two days? I mean, you know, do what you need to do to get through. If you're not a drinker, then, you know, introducing alcohol into your routine just because you're off of cannabis probably isn't the best idea. And, you know, again, harm reduction. So if if you're someone who's like, you know what, I've been using cannabis all day for a very long time. And I really don't think uh, it's good for me to be without it, or I don't want to be without it. You can reduce your use, right? So if you're somebody that's having, you know, four 10 milligram gummies a day, try two. If you're somebody that's hitting the vape pen consistently, hit it, put it away. Say you're not going to come back to it for an hour. And then after that hour, come back to it. So like, there's actually a lot of ways to reduce the amount of THC you're bringing into your body without stopping completely. But stopping completely is what's going to really allow for that reset. Now, there's other things you can do. Hemp flower, for example. There's some amazing hemp flower out there, like grown just like your regenerative cannabis flower. And so if you're like, I need a substitute for smoking a joint, like I'm just so used to smoking joints and I don't think I could go without that, you know, mix some of your high THC flour with some hemp flour or substitute a couple of those THC joints every day for a hemp joint. There's other smokable herbs as well that can provide relaxation, that can help with sleep. So there's a whole menagerie of herbs out there 
that can help with some of the things we use cannabis for while you want to take a break. So, you know, do some research, find some other herbal options, some adaptogenic mushroom options, which can also provide some of those benefits and really prepare yourself for the break. And just know that it's probably not going to be the funnest thing in the world for a few days and just be ready for that. Have you seen some of the the similar results from CBD consumption? Even though it's interacting with like a different receptor in the body, do you still like recommend people who are, say, taking CBD every day as a replacement for their uh, NSA ID inhibitor, like their ibuprofen or whatever? Do you think that they also should potentially take a cannabinoid that's CBD break instead of a tea break? I think it's probably a good idea. You know, because CBD isn't intoxicating, we don't have some of the same issues with people understanding their tolerance and feeling like they need more in order to get the same effect. Um, And we also don't see people overusing CBD as often because it's non-intoxicating. But again, it's always a good job. And this goes, I mean, really, except for very specific prescription medications that you're taking to control things like epilepsy and other types of conditions, it's a good idea to take a break. It's a good idea to take a break from sugar. It's a good idea to take a break from caffeine. It's a good idea to take a break from NSAIDs. It's just a good idea to give your system a chance to reset, really from most things. Um, We are creatures of habit. When we find something that we like, we ride it till the wheels come off. We just want to have it as much as we possibly can. And so just from a human behavioral perspective, it's a good idea to challenge some of those habits every once in a while. And uh, leave it there for all those people. Yeah, right. Take a tea break, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Min, I know another one of your roles is providing fact sheets and data to elected officials. Is there certain information you provide them where their ears perk up and their heads turn? Money. So, you know, I think there's really, and again, this is about messaging to their constituents. You know, elected officials want one thing, and that's to get reelected. And so thinking about what messages resonate with their constituents. One is tax revenue. Hey, we've got the money to build that new school. We've got the money to repair that road. We've got the money to make your lives easier and better. Constituents love that message. The other one is the reduction in crime. So your your neighborhoods are safer. Your experience is safer. Those things you are worried about, you don't have to worry about anymore. Now, fortunately, we do see from legalization that results in both of those things. We make money off of taxes and we have a safer environment because people have regulated options for cannabis. So I do think that that really speaks to what they're looking to get out of it. Um, But when it comes to like the human aspect, they're not as interested. Now, the one thing that really does change their minds is when they meet someone whose life has been changed by cannabis. And when you hear an elected official make a public declaration that they've now come around on this issue, it is almost always paired with, because I met this person or my mother, sister, brother, neighbor, friend, auntie, whoever has this condition and cannabis really helped them. Like, that really seems to be what changes their mind. But in terms of what gets them to accept a change, a lot of times it's, are these things that are going to get me reelected? And you know the public support for cannabis legalization is so high that you would think that elected officials would be like, oh, cannabis is wildly popular. But again, that propaganda it really takes a hold of your mind and of your heart. And so even if people are providing data for you, that's like, 
80% of your, your voting body wants there to be legal cannabis. And, oh, look, here's all the money you can make. And here's the safety. Their response is going to be, yeah, but I just feel like it's not the right thing to do. And that's when the scientists, we just throw up our hands because you can't really argue against somebody's feeling. What you need is that feeling to be replaced by another feeling. And usually what does that is a personal experience. And, and research can't even do that, right? Because it needs to be an emotional first, firsthand account. Yeah, research can show you how much money you can make, how you can impact the public health and safety of the people in your community. So if they decide to want to move in the direction of cannabis legalization and defend to the anti-cannabis people in their community why they're doing it, then they can trout out the data and say, you know, we can have new schools and we can have roads and we can have, you know, we see um, opiate prescriptions go down. We see youth use go down. Like they can use those talking points but in terms of really coming out as a champion for policy reform, it's going to be about replacing the feeling that it's not a good idea with the feeling that it is a good idea. So we need more anecdotal stories of how cannabis has made people's lives better. Well, I mean, what this really says is that there's a lot of power in individual stories. Yeah, and so true. if you're somebody out there who is in a constituency that has not been very cannabis forward, I'm looking at you, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Idaho. Um, <laughs> you know, if you have a personal story about how cannabis has helped you or helped your child or helped your parent, you might think that, well, I'm just one person, but that really makes a huge difference. And elected officials don't care about anybody that's not going to vote for them or not can't vote for them. So it's not going to do any good for me in Mendocino to call an elected official in Idaho and say, cannabis saved my life because they're going to be like, that's really great, but you can't vote for me. So it's really important that people contact their officials, the people whose names are going to be on their ballots in the election and share their story. Bonus points if it involves a child. Because, you know, the, the stories of pediatric medical cannabis, it's really hard for an elected official to look at that parent in the eye and say, well, I still don't think you should have legal access. So, you know, if you have a story, if cannabis has helped you, if it's helped someone you know, and your elected official is slow to get on board, contact them, request a meeting with them, send them a personal email. Honestly, in a lot of ways, that's going to do more than me showing up with 1,000 petitions. I've given you a magic wand where ethics and money are no issue. What research study would you do? Well, I've always really been interested in people that say they use cannabis just to get high. Like, I feel like there's something deeper there. And I've always wanted to kind of go into that a little bit more and better understand what that means when someone says that. And you hear that a lot, right? Like I hear that a lot. Like I'm not medical. It's not therapeutic. I just use it to get high. I'm really curious what's behind that statement. So that's something that I'd really like to know about. Um, and then I'm really interested in cannabis as a treatment for addiction, right? And we're seeing a lot of research on that regarding psychedelics, which I think is fantastic. 
Um, but you know, I did a very, very small study years ago where we recruited people that were actively using methamphetamine, but were trying to stay within boundaries of use. So they weren't trying to stop, but they just wanted to stay within a boundary that they felt was keeping them safe and sane. And we provided them with medical cannabis. We had them attend mindfulness training, and then we tracked what happened. And all of them were able to stay within their boundaries of methamphetamine use over the six weeks, even though they were using cannabis every single day. So I think as a harm reduction tool, cannabis has a lot of promise, but there's so much stigma around giving someone who has an admitted problem with one drug another drug, you know? And so I think that that's been a really hard study to do. And then I think women, you know, there's a lot of cannabis research on women that we need to do, but we can't because we're so afraid of like harming the reproductive organs of women, you know? So it's it's just been really hard to understand the relationship between women and cannabis. And I think there's so much there, the way it impacts women during menopause and different phases of life, during pregnancy, during motherhood, that are things we just can't touch because of the stigma around using cannabis when being a primary caretaker for a child. Yeah, th- that last one could be such a massive unlocker and it would be such a challenge to, to get that study done. When you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Well, I think what I got right was just the harm reduction nature of cannabis. You know, the fact that people are using cannabis in a way that best suits them in their lives. Like I've always felt that people's relationships with cannabis is very personal and very utilitarian. And people that have been using cannabis a long time, like they really know how to use it, right? They know what it's good for. They know what it's not good for. So I think that that is probably something that from the beginning, I really recognized And then on the other side, I wouldn't necessarily say I got it wrong. I understand where it came from. But, you know, I definitely used to be one of these, you know, cannabis has very few, if any, risks type of person. And I think the reason I was like that and a lot of the early activists were like that is because we were constantly getting hammered from the other side with the messages of doom that, you know, cannabis was the worst, that it was going to cause all these long-term problems, that it was going to ruin teenagers' brains, that it was highly addictive, that it led to the use of other drugs. And so to counter that, I think we were kind of pressured to almost go to the other extreme and say like, no, cannabis isn't addictive and it has no risks. And even though I think it has fewer risks than most other things, nothing is without risk. And yes, you can become dependent on cannabis and you can misuse it and you can overuse it. And there are different methods of ingestion that are more habit forming than others. And cannabis isn't something that can be used by everybody having good um, outcomes. And there are people that have a lot of problems uh, associated with their cannabis consumption. That is all true. It is not a reason to keep it illegal. It is not a reason to tell people they shouldn't use it. But if we're going to develop this long-term healthy relationship with this plant as a society, we need to do it with our eyes open. And we need to be able to say, hey, you know, maybe you're using too much cannabis and maybe there's ways to reduce your use. And that's okay um, without kind of playing this game that it's either all bad or all good. I don't think that's the case. I think that was really well said. Yeah, I agree. If you can sell up your experience and a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? Don't be afraid to pave a path that has not been cut yet. You know, it would have been very easy for me as a researcher coming up in drug policy and substance abuse 
just to stay the track and study adolescent substance abuse and all of the things that the government was funding. And I would be sitting right now in this very nice job under government grants, you know, trying to keep drugs out of the hands of children. Um, but I didn't do that. You know, and instead I was like, look, maybe nobody's doing research on the benefits of cannabis or who consumers are, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And so I did not see a path. There was not a path for me. Um, so I had to cut my own path. And I think that that's an important lesson because there's a lot of young folks coming up who have great ideas, ideas that the older generations can't even begin to wrap our minds around or understand. And there is no path for them to follow. And so cut your own path. If you feel really passionate about what you're doing and you feel that it can benefit society and you feel that it is novel and new and something that other people have shied away from, but you're willing to do it, cut your own path. Beautiful. Love it. All right, prediction time. Dr. Amanda, shifting widespread consumer behavior across society will involve a variety of education advancements through research and potentially generational die-off. Do you envision a world where psychedelics and or cannabis stigma is completely removed? Yes, because I think we've done that with other things, right? There have been other things in our world that had stigma attached to them previously that no longer do. Um, I think that, you know, again, it's going to be a generational shift, which means that all of the remnants of stigma, the people that still hold that up, they're going to have to be out of the picture. So it could take a few generations because looking at my generation, Gen X, we still have stigma. We, it was ingrained in us, right? It was like part of our upbringing. I mean, we had uniformed police officers in our classrooms telling us to turn our parents in if we found them using cannabis. So like, even though a lot of us have shifted our thinking, it still exists in a lot of us. And I would say there's a little bit left of that in the millennial uh, generation as well, because they also grew up half in a time when cannabis was completely prohibited and half in a time when it was starting to be available. I feel like Gen Z is probably the first generation that's really grown up around legal cannabis in a way where they're questioning prohibition as if it's the weirdest thing they've ever heard of instead of my generation that might be questioning it. But in the back of our minds, we kind of understand why it's there. Um, so I, I think that Gen Z, when they become the boomers right? So they're the oldest generation and the generations ahead of them are younger. I think that's when we might see. Now, this is if we don't go backwards. You know, I mentioned that social policy and behavior is a pendulum. And so we see eras of very, very progressive action. And then that's usually followed by eras of very, very conservative action. So we hope that we've made enough gains to the where the pendulum doesn't swing all the way back to where we were before. But I would expect that perhaps the generation after Gen Z, we're going to see more of a swing towards conservatism. I mean, we're already seeing these, what, trad wives and, you know, things on TikTok where it's like women that are dressing like Quakers and serving their man. I mean, that was something that Gen X would just laugh our asses at. But the Gen Zs, there's people that are adopting this lifestyle as a move back to traditional family values. So it's already kind of happening. Um, so, but I do think from stigma, we just really have to wait from the generations that were impacted by propaganda to no longer be around. Kellen. I agree. I think that uh, we talked to another uh, guest on the show and I think they used the word generational die-off maybe. 
Um, <laughs> and so I, I think that it, that's probably the only real thing that's going to influence societal change. I mean, I joke with Brian um, that cannabis has been legal in Colorado now for almost a decade. And there's still like some of the states you listed, Idaho, right? Like still not even a thing. So like, I don't know. It's going to take a, a generational die off. Personally, I just see it like, you know, it's been out there for 10 plus years and we haven't had federal change. It's going to take more than just showing that it works. It's going to take, like you said, like some people that are in places of power, just they're not going to change their mind. Mm-mm. And that's just the facts. So yeah. I think that it is going to take generational die off. What do you think, Brian? So as per the rules of the show, I said, <laughs> yes, I have to take the other side. Um, so I would say no. And I will say the reason that is is because there's people today who still live so far into the past and the information of those parents passed on the information, whether that's that the South won the Civil War, that slavery still exists, all these concepts that we all understand is just not actual, not true. That information, unfortunately, still gets channeled into these small pockets of society. And then information just gets shared from generation to generation. And I think that will prohibit kind of the widespread end of the stigma. And I think they'll continue to push back, whether that's alcohol companies, tobacco companies, pharmaceutical companies, all pushing against kind of the alleviation of the stigma and just keep that stigma there enough to keep that information without just being viscerated back into the universe. Well, until they can make money off it. Yeah, for sure. The pharmaceutical companies, the tobacco companies, and the alcohol companies are sure that they can make money off of cannabis legalization. Cannabis will be legal. So I I do think that there's going to be a financial angle to that. And I think, again, you know, a lot of it is where people can get their information from. You know, in the older generations, your source of information was your parents and maybe a few news outlets. Now there's so much information, maybe too much access to information, but at least enough where you can be like, you know, my parents told me that, but I don't think that's true. And now I'm going to go find a hundred different sources that are going to tell me it's not true. So it'll be interesting to see how the information age impacts that transition of generational knowledge. And, you know, when we get the generation that just isn't willing to hear it uh, because they have so many different outlets for finding that information. And it varies kind of like location-based too, which is the craziest part, even here in the United States. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you go to some states, it's a whole other world um, in terms of how people pass along information. I mean, I grew up in Indiana. And let me tell you, like we always used to joke, we were 10 years behind the rest of the country. So things that were happening in the rest of the country would kind of filter down to these other states. And so that's why, you know, with what Kellen said, I mean, I call it aging out, not generational death. (laughs) Aging out of certain generations, right? And then, you know, but again, that pendulum, so we could see in, you know, two generations from now, people coming up and saying, no one should use any drugs and we're all pure of spirit. And, you know, we completely reject any kind of intoxicants and we're all straight edge. Like that could totally happen. So we'll just have to wait and see. Amazing. So Dr. Man, if our listeners, they want to get in touch, they want to learn more and they want to read your writing, where can I find you? Uh, so the easiest, so my email is just amanda at mypersonalplants.com. Very easy. The website is mypersonalplants.com. I've got a newsletter you can sign up for. It comes out every two weeks. It's free. It has great information. And then um, newfrontierdata.com as well. If you're a cannabis business out there, you're looking to acquire new customers, better understand who are your consumers, what they're doing, what they want, what they care about, uh, please reach out to us at New Frontier Data. The EPO program is fire. Just FYI. Thank you. you. Good plug, Kel. All right, right, we'll link it up on the show. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Anytime.
Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.